To Forgotten TV, the podcast that brings you TV memories of the 70s and 80s, with a focus on short-lived TV shows, pilots, as well as made-for-TV movies. I am your host, Chris Cooling. In the first podcast considering creepy TV monster movies of the 70s a year ago, we looked at the beginnings of what became known as the made-for-TV movie and how ABC created the Movie of the Week format, with a 90-minute instead of 120-minute runtime, which allowed for a smaller budget and faster production schedule. Made for a fraction of the cost and time a theatrical film took, ABC produced an incredible 253 movies of the week, from 1969 to 1975. Movie of the Week. It came to television four years ago, and today announces still another season of world premieres. Another season of outstanding performances. Week after week, remarkable motion pictures for television. Television's number one success story, The Movie Maker, Movie of the Week. Some served as TV pilots to launch a series. Others became unforgettable classics. But most were standalone films that encouraged people to enjoy an after-dinner living room appointment on Tuesday nights. Beginning with the first supernatural thriller TV movie, Fear No Evil, in 1969 airing on NBC, TV networks found mystery, thriller, and horror presentations to be very successful movies of the week and no network ended up doing this as well as ABC. Made-for-TV horror films were popular even with viewers that may even never had ventured to the theater to watch similar fare. As theatrical films became more graphic in the 1970s, so did television content, to an extent. But the horror presented on the small screen was less intimidating, restrained by broadcast decency guidelines and familiar faces like Joe Namath selling Noxzema, Brute, or Hamilton Beach appliances during commercial breaks reassured viewers they were safe in their living room. And if things got too intense, a viewer could always change the channel. Now, presented for your approval, four more tales of terror, originally presented on ABC to thrill 1970s TV audiences. First, is it possible a 144-year-old killer is stalking women in modern-day 1973 Seattle? Darren McGavin stars in The Night Strangler. Then, who or what is terrorizing a Louisiana Bayou town? Find out in Moon of the Wolf. Next, an archaeology professor investigating a cursed Egyptian artifact connected to several deaths finds more than he bargained for in the cat creature. Finally, a legendary creature with an unearthly thirst for revenge. Who can survive the curse of the Black Widow? 
So sit back, relax, but don't get too relaxed because we're going to look at more creepy TV monster movies of the 70s on this episode of Forgotten TV. The Night Strangler Yes, in 1972, ABC brought viewers The Night Stalker, earning the highest ratings of any TV movie up to that time. Wanting to repeat this success, ABC again turned to Dark Shadows producer Dan Curtis, who would this time also direct and bring to the screen The Night Strangler. With a screenplay again written by the prolific Richard Matheson, writer of 16 classic Twilight Zone episodes, The Omega Man, episodes of Night Gallery, the TV movie Duel, among too many others to mention. Using essentially a different arrangement of the same score Robert Colbert gave us in the first film, The Night Strangler aired Tuesday, January 16, 1973, as the movie of the week. ABC presents the movie of the week. We open with a voiceover of reporter Carl Kolchak, narrating his notes of his latest investigation. This is the story behind the most incredible series of murders to ever occur in the city of Seattle, Washington. You never read about them in your local newspapers or heard about them on your local radio or television station. Why? Because the facts were watered down, torn apart, and reassembled. In a word, falsified. Saturday, April 1st, approximately 2.35 a.m. Marissa, one of the three belly dancers at Omar's Tent, a well-known bar in the Pioneer Square area. She was through for the night and on her way to St. James Street, where she could catch the 3 a.m. bus that would take her to her small apartment in the Shoreline Park area. Anxious to get home, she planned to take a shower and go right to bed. She never made it. Seattle, a year after the horrific events in Las Vegas, and Carl Kolchak is still trying to get people to believe him regarding his experience with the Las Vegas vampire at a local bar frequented by news reporters. It is here he reunites with Vincenzo, his editor from when he worked at the Las Vegas newspaper. Vincenzo reluctantly hires Kolchak on at the Daily Chronicle, where he is currently editor, and gives him his first assignment that of the murdered belly dancer, Ethel Parker. Not making much headway with police, he digs around at her workplace, Omar's tent, and questions the other two belly dancers, Charisma Beauty and Louise Harper. Charisma isn't much of an intellectual, and Louise is so busy with her university studies, she doesn't have time for Carl. Soon, another woman is murdered, a cocktail waitress, and a press conference is held, and Kolchak has questions. Checking underneath the victim's hairline, we located what appears to be a needle puncture near the base of the skull, from which a small amount of blood was removed. Was there any puncture or loss of blood in Ethel Parker? Uh, we haven't had a chance to check on the puncture yet, but there 
was apparently a slight decrease in normal blood content. How slight? Well, that's hard to say. Maybe six or seven cc's. Why wasn't it reported? The amount of loss seemed insignificant at the time. But not now. You have a point. Uh, just a minute, Doctor. So who is this clown? Call I've never Call seen him before. What? Call Shank. Daily Chronicle. Don't you remember, Captain? Oh, yeah, yeah. How can I forget? All right, now, Mr. Kolchak, may we continue? Certainly. Uh, thank you very much. Go ahead, Doctor. As long as we get all the facts this time. <laughs> Dissatisfied by what I had heard at the medical examiner's report, I paid a little visit to the morgue and found myself a chatty attendant with a taste for scotch. What he told me made chopped liver of the needle puncture and loss of blood and explained why they hadn't let me look too closely at Gail Manning the night before. Visiting the morgue, Kolchak finds the two victims had the same circumstances of death. Puncture wounds on the back of the neck and a minimal amount of blood removed, with necks not only broken, but crushed, and the residue of rotted flesh left on their throats, as if they had been strangled by a dead man. Kolchak visits another morgue, the one in the basement of the Daily Chronicle, where a large library is held, as well as the entire history of the newspaper's editions. The research clerk, Mr. Barry, reveals how similar the current murders are to a series of murders that happened 21 years earlier, in 1952. Further research indicates similar murders in 1931, 1910, 1889, and 1868, each time taking place over a period of 18 days. Five identical sets of murders every 21 years since 1889? You really and truly expect me to print that story with a corpse that's been running around, strangling people and crushing their necks for the past 84 years? How can I let this happen to me? How could I do it? I don't understand. Will you wait a minute? Will you just wait a minute? We wasted a lot of time. We wasted an awful lot of time fighting tooth and nail in Las Vegas about the obvious. There is no such thing as a vampire. That's what everyone kept saying, and the women kept dying. Now, let's not play that stupid game again. Besides, it's a great story. It's a fabricated story full of screwball speculation. Fabricated speculation? What, have you been sitting on your brain? Just, just give me the facts, Kolchak, or stay away from me. Just the facts. Step number one in my fact-finding project took me to the main library, where I spent the rest of the evening checking through their microfilm collection of Seattle's newspapers. The murder trail apparently came to an end in 1889. But I found out something very interesting. As near as I could make it out, every set of murders had taken place over a period of 18 days, which meant that our killer, whoever or whatever he was, only had a week and a day to find his last three victims. That night, about 11.45, he reduced the number to two. Soon a police patrol stumbles upon another murder, this time with the murderer caught in the act and cornered, shot at, and multiple police are unsuccessful at apprehending him as he inexplicably escapes, even though the area was surrounded Suspecting this may have something to do with the Seattle Underground Louise mentioned to him earlier, Kolchak takes the underground tour with Louise, but only comes across a wino. Louise suggests they see a Professor Crabwell that seems to know a bit about things that go bump in the night. She explains to Carl about the elixir 
of life. How can a man over a hundred years old retain his vitality? Is it possible? Staying young was not their purpose. Alchemy was conceived as an exalted notion, man at one with the universe. Tell me, what other, uh, what other ingredients are in this elixir of life? Milk or meat, celandine or honey, red wine vinegar, hair, sweat, blood. What kind of blood? What do you mean? What kind of blood? Human blood, of course. What are you smiling at? Kolchak begins to piece together what must be happening. This only leads to a shouting match with Vincenzo. Suppose an elixir of life could actually be produced. How do you think it would work? I mean, do you think, do you think that, that one treatment of it would cause everlasting youth? Or do you think that... The, uh, well, periodic treatments might be required, say... Wait a minute, wait a minute, don't tell me, let me guess. Every 21 years? Good guess. Now suppose at the end of this 21-year period, the man who took the magic elixir began looking a little uh, moldy, you know, kind of like what he really did look like, actually, a 100-year-old man. Suppose he had to make a new batch of the elixir and had to make it within a period of 18 days. Suppose that the one ingredient he didn't have was blood. Very good. Suppose he had to go out late every night to get that blood. Suppose he got it from the basis of his victim's skulls with a hypodermic needle. And suppose he was so strong that when he strangled his victims, he crushed their necks. And suppose his fingertips were starting to decompose and left fragments of them on the women's throats. And suppose you flap your arms and fly right out that door. And suppose you check on the victim and you discover what the word fat means, Colchak. Fat! They don't have to wait long for another victim. This time, belly dancer Charisma Beauty is killed. And Carl, in desperation, goes to have words with the police captain, only to find they are not quite as incompetent as he thought. You've got to put police women on the waterfront streets at night. Do I, Mr. Yeah, Patrick? you do. You've got five days in which to catch the killer. Otherwise, he's going to disappear. Oh, is he, Mr. Cole? Yeah, he is. He is. Every 21 years since 1889, he has killed six women in 18 days precisely. Precisely, Mr. Cole? Precisely. Precisely. Well, no doubt we lack your eagle-eyed perception, but somehow we fail to see the exact precise pattern you keep babbling about. Now, in 1889, there was no evidence that the murders were committed over an 18-day period, or for that matter, that they were even related. You yeah, check? Yes, we do a little research, too, sometimes. Oh, uh, you mean you missed that? Well, I... Uh... Why no signs of rotted flesh on the throat of last night's victim? Um... And one last question. Why am I wasting my time on you? This little spat gets him in trouble with the publisher of the paper that leads to another shouting match with Vincenzo, who takes him off the case. However, more research by Mr. Barry reveals more information, including, finally, the name of a potential suspect, a Dr. Malcolm Richards. Or is that Dr. Richard Malcolm? Now you get down from there this instant, sir! Malcolm Richards, M.D., the doctor's saint of the waterfront, founder of the Richards Free Clinic, also known as Richard Malcolm, M.D., late of the Union Army, our killer from time. 
an act of vandalism of a painting of our said doctor, lands Carl in handcuffs in front of the police captain, Chronicle publisher Crossbinder, and editor Vincenzo to explain himself. And he lays out quite an explanation. Mr. Richard Malcolm lived in New York City until 1868 when he moved to Seattle. Very good, Mr. Barry, very good. Several months before he left uh, New York City, that is, six women were strangled over a period of 18 days, precisely. Item, following the fire of 1889, in which the wife, stepson, and daughter uh, died of smoke inhalation, uh, Dr. Richard Malcolm disappeared. 1889, as we know, just happens to be the year in which the first group of six killings occurred, Mr. Vincenzo. Yes, in 1910, doc, uh, Dr. Malcolm Richards appeared in the by now defunct Westside Mercy Hospital, of which as noted, Dr. Richard Malcolm was formerly a member of the staff, and built his clinic over the original site. 1910, by coincidence, just happens to be the year in which the second group of six killings occurred, Mr. Vincenzo. Oh, Jack. In 1931, following reports that he had developed some kind of a quote, strange degenerative skin disease, unquote, Dr. Malcolm Richards disappeared. Now, this photograph of Dr. Richard Malcolm and the uh, slightly doctored photograph of Dr. Malcolm Richards are identical down to the white scar above the right eyebrow. Huh? Now, this photograph was taken during the Civil War when Dr. Richard Malcolm was a surgeon with the Union Army. The photograph of Dr. Malcolm Richards was taken in 1926. It showed a man in his 40s. Now, how can a man almost 90 look like a man in his 40s? Facts, gentlemen. Facts. Off the hook with this information, but under strict orders to abandon the story, Kolchak is out the next night with Louise with his own sting operation to lure out the Strangler. They don't know how close they came to encountering the Strangler, but instead are both arrested for their trouble, forcing the Strangler to find another victim, the final expected victim of the 18-day period. Hearing how police again lose the killer in an alley, the bailed-out Kolchak knows there has to be a way he is disappearing into the underground. Breaking into the basement of the Richards Clinic, Kolchak finds a trap door and sends Louise to summon the police as he descends multiple stories deep into an area of the underground not on any tour. After an extended scene, he finally comes face to face with the 144-year-old killer who is only too happy to explain himself. Malcolm takes Kolchak several stories up in an elevator to his lab. In 1868, I first took the elixir. Then, believing that my immortality was assured, I decided to perfect and refine the, the formula in the hopes of bestowing its benefits on mankind. And then, in 1889, my world collapsed. I discovered that the effects of the elixir were not permanent. I began to age. 
Kolchak hurls a solid glass candle holder at the Florence flask holding Malcolm's precious elixir, denying him his final needed dose. Enraged, Malcolm charges Kolchak and begins to choke him. But with no final dose, his body begins to age rapidly as the police show up and witness his appearance. Defeated, Malcolm hurls himself off a platform to his death. Later, a happy Kolchak waltzes into the newspaper office to find his story has been squashed by the publisher, resulting in yet another shouting match between Kolchak and Vincenzo, with Kolchak losing his job and smashing Vincenzo's office window with a paperweight, much as he smashed the Strangler's chemistry flasks. So there it is, another tale of defeat snatched from the jaws of triumph, another case of virtue unrewarded of dishonesty being the best policy. Injustice Will rampant... Will you shut up and put that stupid recorder away? Let me get plate. Get that story published. Oh, don't tell me when I'm going to get published. Yeah, nobody's going to kill this story. It's already been killed, Cold Shack. Bury it. Not this one. No, sir. I like to see somebody shut me up on this one. Can anybody shut you up? Mr. Vincenzo, you are a passenger in this car. This is my automobile. Well, don't worry about it, Tony. You're going to love it, New York. New York! New York! Yeah, that's where we're going. And you're lucky to be going with me. I suppose I should consider myself lucky, too. That's right. Oh, cold check. Do you know that I have heard just about all I want to take from you or even hear ever again? You think you've got problems? Here I was, one semester shy of getting my degree in psychology, and what happens? You show up outside my house for one day. Mouth, all mouth, Kolchak. And Kolchak, Vincenzo, and Louise are on their way to their next adventure in New York. With Darren McGavin, Joanne Flug, Simon Oakland, Scott Brady, Wally Cox, Margaret Hamilton, John Carradine, Al Lewis, Nina Wayne, Virginia Peters, Kate Murtug, and Richard Anderson as the Night Strangler. (laughs) ¶¶ 
Bone Chilling Behind the Scenes. The Kolchak character originated in an unpublished novel by Jeff Rice called The Kolchak Papers. In it, a Las Vegas newspaper reporter named Carl Kolchak tracks down and defeats a serial killer who turns out to be a vampire named Janos Skorzeny, which is a pretty accurate description of what happened in the first film. After the success of these two TV movies, the novel was published in 1973 by Pocket Books as a mass-market paperback, with a photo of Darren McGavin on the cover to tie it to the film. The Night Strangler was also turned into a novel, written by Jeff Rice, based on the Richard Matheson script. Matheson's original script for this was called The Time Killer. This installment got a 23.4 rating, not as impressive as The Night Stalker a year earlier, but still perfectly respectable. The runtime of the original airing was 74 minutes without commercials. A 90-minute version was prepared for overseas theatrical release, which is the same version the various U.S. video releases used. Dan Curtis's first cut of the film ran about two hours. But even after editing down to 90 minutes, there still seemed to be a lot of padding in various scenes, especially when Kolchak wanders the Seattle underground, searching for the killer. When you watch this film, you can't help but notice strong similarities to The Night Stalker. It's more than similar. This, in fact, is one of the main criticisms typically held against this movie, was that it plays as a beat-for-beat remake of the original. ABC certainly wanted to repeat the unprecedented success of the first one, and in the pre-VCR 1970s, TV networks could certainly do this far easier than even a decade later, or much less today. Remember, there were no home video recordings or on-demand ways to watch the original, and it had been a year since that film premiered. If you missed it, you had to wait for a repeat months later, and perhaps stay up to watch it on the late movie even then. Networks could get away with a lot more repetition and recycling of ideas than they would later be able to. Star Darren McGavin When ABC wanted to do another Night Stalker, Dan literally redid the first one in another town. You know what the problem with the sequel is. They don't know how to make a sequel with the character, so what they do is take the formula and redo it. That's why I didn't like Night Strangler that much. If you run the two movies consecutively, you say yourself, wait a minute, I just saw that, and that's why I didn't want to do a third one at the time. I suppose as TV movies go, it's all very good, but it was kind of weary and threadbare, even the second time around. It was like we'd done it before. The first one was so original. The second one was the same thing, same structure. Yes, it was so similar. It is easy to conflate scenes from this and The Night Stalker, as well as even the premiere episode of the series, The Ripper. The antagonist in this movie has similarities to the main character in the original Twilight Zone episode, Long Live Walter Jameson, written by Richard Matheson's friend, Charles Beaumont. Of course, in that story, Walter Jameson was a benign college professor, passing on the wisdom of the ages, and not a serial killer. The murders in the film took place in the historic Pioneer Square area of Seattle, formerly known as Skid Row. Other Seattle landmarks seen include the Seattle Monorail, the Space Needle, Seattle University, 
and they were specific locations referred to in the script for the TV movie, thanks to Richard Matheson's family vacations. Matheson had also taken the underground tour while on vacation in Seattle, and this made it into the story. Some of the interior shots where Kolchak looked down into the Strangler's massive underground lair were shot at the Bradbury Building in downtown Los Angeles. The interior is highly recognizable from being in TV and film such as Blade Runner, the Outer Limits episode Demon with the Glass Hand, and Chinatown. And Seattle's underground tour is featured in this film. The Seattle Underground is a network of underground passageways and basements in downtown Pioneer Square that used to be at ground level when the city was first built. In 1889, the Great Seattle Fire destroyed 31 blocks of this area, and the city decided, since they were rebuilding, to elevate the ground level, since the area often flooded. Originally, this underground was still used by some businesses and pedestrians, but it was condemned in 1907 out of fear of bubonic plague. Only a small portion, much smaller than depicted in the film, has been restored made safe and accessible to the public on guided tours. In 1965, local citizen Bill Spidell established Bill Spidell's Underground Tour, which operates to this day. The circular red couch the filmmakers used for certain scenes was left behind and is still there. Today, you can take specialty tours of the Underground. The Underworld Tour is an adults-only stroll through the old red-light district of the abandoned underground area. And the Underground Paranormal Experience, where you become a paranormal investigator as you roam the passageways in the dark. McGavin's performance of Kolchak this time is far more abrasive, and he comes across much of the time as a complete jerk, to put it mildly. This would be toned down quite a bit in the series. The tone of this film this time around is a little lighter, as several scenes seem to be milk for comedy, especially ones between Kolchak and Vincenzo. There are also some great bits with Al Lewis, who played Grandpa Munster, with Margaret Hamilton, who was the Wicked Witch on The Wizard of Oz, and there was a hilarious bit between Kate Murtaugh and Darren McGavin in the newspaper office. She later played Mom on Dr. Detroit. And yes, Richard Anderson played The Strangler, who the following year would start playing good guy Oscar Goldman, Steve Austin and Jamie Summers' boss on The Six Million Dollar Man and The Bionic Woman. The makeup in this film was done by William Tuttle, responsible for the makeup in Singing in the Rain, Forbidden Planet, North by Northwest, and The Time Machine. He reused pieces he first created for The Time Machine in the classic Twilight Zone episode, The Eye of the Beholder, one of his many Twilight Zone contributions. Unfortunately, viewed in HD on a large screen shows the limitations of the makeup effects. But remember, the makeup effects were designed on a TV budget for viewing in 1970s broadcast definition, and half the population still had a black-and-white TV in 1973. But the new 4K HD version just released by Kino Lorber watched on a large screen serves as a great snapshot of early 1970s Seattle. It looks better than any prior video release, and seen on a modern 1080 or better TV will look better than the original airing for that matter. 
The daylight scenes actually look like they were filmed during the day, and additional clarity is present in the darker scenes. Even if you don't have Blu-ray and just get the DVD, it's worth it, since the DVD uses the same new HD 4K Master that the Blu-ray does. Just make sure you're getting the new Kino Lorber release with the new Sean Phillips art on the cover. According to the book The Night Stalker Companion, there was an argument on set between Dan Curtis and Darren McGavin at the very end of filming. Curtis was being very short-tempered with the crew and wanted to do reshoots on the last day of filming. But McGavin wasn't having it. That was the last setup, Dan. We'll go home now. You've got enough film. Make your movie. Goodbye. McGavin was reported as saying. Dan Curtis and Darren McGavin didn't speak again for years. This was one of the reasons this was the end of the Kolchak TV movies. And we ended up getting a series instead with Curtis not involved. Due partly to the retread of what was presented in the original movie, and partly due perhaps to the less supernatural nature of the villain this time around, this one is less than effective and has a much weaker ending compared to the first, although a more optimistic ending for our reluctant hero with Kolchak, Vincenzo, and potential girlfriend Louise heading to New York City for their next adventure. A third TV movie was actually planned, titled The Night Killers, to be set in Honolulu, with the story involving a UFO and people being replaced by androids. This TV movie was set aside when ABC chose to order a TV series instead. The same basic story idea in The Night Strangler would incredibly be recycled again and presented much more simply in 50 minutes for the series premiere episode the Ripper. For that, you'll have to check out Forgotten TV in October 2019 when I will cover the series Kolchak, The Night Stalker. these creepy messages. We'll be right back. Welcome. Please feel right at home. I want to teach you a game called, amusingly enough, Stay Alive. It's quite deadly. To win, you eliminate your opponents like this, or they eliminate you. It's great fun. I'd be happy to teach you how to play, but there's no one left. I'm the sole survivor. Stay alive from Milton Bradley. Friday, a Halloween special starring Paul Lynn. Turning myself on. And his special guests, Tim Conway, Florence Henderson, Donnie and Marie Osmond, Pinky Tuscadero, and the Incredible Kids. All on the Paul Lynn Halloween special. Friday on ABC. The Wolf. Aired September 26, 1972, as an ABC movie of the week. 
It's night in Marsh Island, Louisiana. Tom Sr. and Tom Jr.'s coon dogs are going crazy, and they follow them out to the swamp to find out what's going on. A grisly killing has taken place as they find the dead body of a local young woman, Ellie. Bringing in the local sheriff, Whitaker, and the local doctor, a conclusion is quickly drawn. Wild dogs do it to her? Tell me what you mean by do it. Dogs might very well have done something to her. There were bite marks. Something struck her. Someone struck her. With enough force either to kill her outright or to render her sufficiently senseless to be dragged out into that field and left for the dogs to finish off. You've got a murder, Sheriff. Visiting Ellie's family, the sheriff finds the father, old man Hughes, repeatedly saying, Lukaruk. But the sheriff quickly dismisses his ramblings. What's he saying? What he's been saying ever since Ellie was killed. Uh, Hugh, what are you saying, Hugh? What was he talking about? I don't know French. What's a lucaru? I don't know. Well, you speak French. Never heard that word before. First time I heard that word was when I come back from where they found Ellie. Did he know about Ellie? Yeah, he knows. Who told him? Nobody told him. Well, then how does he know? Well, I can't tell you that. He's been talking like that ever since I got back. Nah, it doesn't make any sense. He's just got crazy things going on in his head because he's old and sick. And the brother Lawrence is quick to throw suspicion on a well-to-do young man that was seeing Ellie. It wasn't wild dogs that killed Ellie. Now, how do you know that? She was having trouble. What kind of trouble? With a man. Now, who? I don't know who. Wasn't anybody from down here on the bayou. Somebody up on Pecan Hill. Some other Marsh Island snobbery. Questioning the young man, Andrew Rodanth, he claimed he had malaria last night. A likely story. Andrew's flirtatious sister Louise, in from New York, remembers Sheriff Whitaker from school and might still carry feelings for him. Soon it is uncovered that Ellie was pregnant. And Dr. Druton has some shocking news about the causes of this pregnancy. How come you didn't tell me Ellie was pregnant? I knew she was pregnant. I was third in my class. How come you didn't say anything? Aaron, I was performing an autopsy to determine cause of death. Pregnancy didn't cause her death. Well, I'm not so sure. Well, I am. Doc, if she was pregnant, somebody got her that way. And that's a clear lead to, to who killed her. No. No, it isn't. None at all. 
because I got her pregnant. And I didn't kill her. I loved her. Taking a break from investigating, the sheriff and Louise Rodanth go out for coffee. Meanwhile, old man Hughes is still going on about the Lukarook, and Dr. Druton gives him a sedative, and Lawrence finds out about Ellie's pregnancy and decks the doctor. Thinking the killing was done by a wild dog, all the local menfolk get together and decide to hunt down all the wild dogs. Finally, at the halfway point of the film, we get a point-of-view shot of something, stalking around the local jail, where Lawrence is inside. The something makes short work of the deputy, as well as the jail cell doors, and does away with Lawrence. For some reason, the sheriff thinks old man Hughes is next and seeks a new deputy to help him, and only Andrew Rodanth volunteers. However, following an old superstition, the Hughes maid has hung bags of sulfur at the house entrance, to the detriment of Andrew, who collapses. With Andrew recovering, Sheriff Whitaker again decides to visit old man Hughes and takes Louise along. Evidently, the only other person who can speak French on Marsh Island. She makes a startling announcement. Monsieur, qu'est-ce que vous dites? Monsieur, répétez ça, s'il vous plaît. Aaron? Aaron? It's his dialect. Look, Luke. He's saying Luke Garou. Werewolf. He's saying werewolf. He says that I'm his next victim. Back at the hospital, Dr. Druton is attacked by the werewolf, who we have now figured out is Andrew Rodanth. The men of the island form a wolf posse this time to hunt him down, and Sheriff Whitaker goes to see Louise, but then leaves, and the Rodanth mansion is quickly under attack by the werewolf Andrew. Louise runs out to the barn, which gets set on fire when she fends off his attacks. But he's not dead yet, as he follows her into the mansion. Louise retrieves a revolver, and the werewolf Andrew charges at her deliberately, forcing her to repeatedly shoot him.
Juilliard. He knew. He made me fire at it. He knew. The bullets. He must have had them blessed. He must have done that. He knew. Bone chilling behind the scenes. Faithfully based on the novel by Les Witten, prolific TV director Daniel Petrie's Moon of the Wolf was an eerie southern gothic monster movie with a great cast and an engaging storyline with some decent casting choices. Moon of the Wolf featured David Jansen as Sheriff Whitaker, Barbara Rush, Bradford Dillman, Jeffrey Lewis, and even Royal Dano all make appearances. Jansen was, of course, famous for his role in the original The Fugitive. Composer Bernardo Segal did the music score with some great uses of piano and harpsichord. The retro-style werewolf makeup was done by, you guessed it, William Tuttle. Some may scoff at the classic werewolf design, but it was effective enough for the small screen, especially for the early 70s. Visually, the film definitely looks like a TV production, and the repeated day-for-night scenes don't help matters. The first two-thirds is fairly slow-moving, but things really get going once the werewolf finally makes an appearance. This actually probably would have worked better as a one-hour drama done on an anthology show with some of the unnecessary scenes cut out. It originally aired as part of ABC's Movie of the Week, then later aired as an installment of ABC's Wide World of Mystery in May 1974. Then it enjoyed many repeat airings in primetime as well as on The Late Show. While the pacing and production may seem dated today, this was probably pretty effective on TV, viewed on The Late Show at the time. Loup Garou means werewolf in French. Many historians believe that the myth of werewolves can originally be traced to France. Scenes of the town were shot in downtown Clinton, Louisiana. A few of the townspeople that appear of extras also lived there in Clinton. The rest of the scenes were filmed in Burnside, Louisiana. This film has fallen into public domain. As a result, it has received several VHS and DVD releases and is sometimes included in those collections DVD sets, so this one is easily findable on home video. Many of these, though, feature inferior sound and video quality due to a poor transfer to DVD. It is also viewable free on 2B TV as well as YouTube. After these creepy messages, we'll be right back. With the monster machine and your imagination, you can crank out a creepy creation, the Rotocast Monster Machine. Born, crank, in an hour it's dried. You've made Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the Rotocast Monster Machine. Paints come with it to make it look fine. It's Galax and old Frankenstein. The Rotocast Monster Machine by Hansa with five monster modes, paint, and instant muck. On cliffhangers, Dracula has lived 512 years as a shadow of the night. That is something I will never know. Now the daughter of one of his beautiful victims sets out to prove him wrong, aided by the grandson of the legendary Von Helsing. Together they hunt the hunter. Dracula stops Susan Williams and the Secret Empire. Cliffhangers, tonight. (laughs) 
presents the movie of the week. The Cat Creature. Airing December 11th, 1973, as an ABC movie of the week. Appraiser Frank Lucas arrives at the Drake estate and ascends a spiral staircase in the dark at midnight. He's there to finish inventorying the estate, including a mysterious secret collection of Egyptian artifacts. He enters a room full of sarcophagi, idols, and other antiquities. At the far side of the room, he opens a sarcophagus of what appears to be a mummified female, with a medallion around its neck, that of a solid gold cat's head with emerald eyes. On the back are hieroglyphics. When leaving the room to retrieve his tape recorder, a thief enters and steals the medallion. Suddenly, he notices the sarcophagus is open and empty. The shadow of a cat is seen crossing the room and attacks Lucas. The thief later enters the sorcerer's shop, which specializes in the occult, and tries to sell proprietress Hester Black the medallion. She examines it, refuses to buy it, and throws the thief out of her shop. In his rush, he leaves the suitcase he brought the medallion in, and salesgirl Sherry finds it handy to carry home her sketches in. Walking home in the dead of night, Sherry is startled by a black cat knocking over a garbage can and takes the cat home to feed it. The cat seems to hypnotize Sherry, who hurls herself out of her fourth-floor window onto the ground below. Later, Hester is interviewing for the suddenly vacant sales clerk position and hires young Rena Carter. Back at the Drake estate, Professor Roger Edmonds, an archaeologist specializing in Egyptology, arrives to assist Police Lieutenant Marco with the case of the dead appraiser, and makes an interesting observation.
The cult of bass flourished for centuries. Then around uh, 400 B.C. it was stamped out. Its priests were hunted down and buried alive. Why? Well, mainly because they believed that in return for human sacrifices, the goddess would grant them eternal life. And they were also supposed to uh, have the power to turn into cats. What are you trying to make of all this? Just uh, giving you the historical facts, Lieutenant. Well, here's something for you to think about. Now, whoever committed the murder was after the amulet. Stealing of the mummy was part of his cover-up. And then, um, what about the strange marks on the appraiser's face? Any number of weapons could have caused those wounds. This just came in from the coroner's office. Bad news. We finished the preliminary examination of the corpse. The wounds on his throat were made by tooth and claws. Later, Lieutenant Marco, with Professor Edmonds, come by the sorcerer's shop while canvassing pawn shops for the stolen medallion. Lieutenant Marco then tracks down the thief and finds the second victim. Meanwhile, Professor Edmonds takes a liking to Rena, and the two have dinner. The coroner, examining the thief's body, discusses his findings with Lieutenant Marco and Professor Edmonds. Indicate they were inflicted by an animal the size of a domestic cat. 
cat. It, it lives down in the Jaggy Levine. Listen, Liz, I merely wanted to point out that these wounds are the same as those we found on the body of the appraiser. So, uh, you think it might be... it might be the same type of animal? The same animal? The bacterial cultures from the wounds of both victims are identical. Rabies? No indication. Then, uh, what you're saying is that these men were killed and attacked by a common domestic cat. I'm not offering an opinion. My job is to give the evidence. Don't make any sense. Once and all, Lieutenant, the bodies of both victims were almost completely drained of blood. The police track down the pawn shop where the thief successfully pawned the medallion and find the pawnbroker murdered with a knife in his back. Unseen to the police, the black cat is playing in the pawn shop window. In the back room of the sorcerer's shop, the shadow of the cat is again seen, attacking Hester as Rena arrives, just as Hester dies, uttering one word, cat. Later, Professor Edmonds is finally able to examine the cat medallion, and with a colleague, he is able to translate it. Generally, it refers to something that's um, hidden away. Something secret that's guarded by Seth, the god of the underworld. But uh, I, I don't know exactly what it means. It means that I was right about the purpose of that amulet. Yes, look at this. Beware the seal of Kurupset, for he who dares to remove it will open the gates of hell. There's your exact translation. Good night, Roger. Reflecting on the case, Professor Edmonds reaches a startling conclusion and confronts Rena. Lieutenant Mark is on his way here to arrest you. What? Don't you see? Everything about you adds to Mark's suspicion. No previous address, no social security number. A girl who covered the tracks. A girl who stopped at the shop, not by accident, but with deliberate purpose. Marker thinks that you destroyed everyone who stood between you and that amulet. Well, that's impossible. They were killed by a cat. I know they were. It's written on the amulet. You found it? Yes. That amulet is placed on the mummy's throat for the same reason a stake is driven through a vampire's heart to keep it from rising and resuming an unnatural life, nourished by blood. So, when the thief removed the amulet, the mummy revived? That's right. Vampires seek their prey in the form of bats. The follower of bats took the shape of a cat to kill for blood and track down that amulet. And once that amulet is destroyed, this creature can live forever. So then, cat creatures really the mummy of the high priest of bats? No, Rena. Not a priest. The inscription on the amulet 
identifies the mummy as a priestess. No wonder you're afraid of cats. They recognize you for what you are. The priestess of bath. No, you don't know what you're saying. Of course you have no past history. All you know of today's world is what you drained from the mind of Hester's clerk when you hypnotized her and sent her to death. How can I let you understand? You don't know what it's like to be buried away alone in the darkness. Century upon century of blackness. Paralyzed to move. Oprised yet conscious of every calling moment. Now, when I revived, I had to protect myself, to get to anyone who might have that amulet, and that was self-preservation, not murder. Whatever it was, those people are dead. But I'm alive. Don't you see what that means? To be able to see, to touch, to love, to feel joy, desire. Now, I meant it when I said we could go away together. Can be together always. That'll be my gift to you, the secret of immortality. You're asking me to become what you are, to kill for blood. I'm offering you eternal life. What you offer is eternal death. I won't let you go. Rena then attacks Edmonds in cat form. And he is able to place the medallion around the cat's neck. The cat transforms into Rena, now an ancient high priestess form, complete with full Egyptian dress. Unable to attack Edmonds, she wanders outside, where neighborhood cats attack her and she reverts to mummy form, then into a pile of dust with a medallion on top of it. Bone Chilling Behind the Scenes The cat creature was directed by Curtis Harrington, who had brought us 60s horror films Night Tide, Queen of Blood, and Whoever Slew Auntie Rue. The cat creature was full of recognizable faces. Meredith Baxter, David Hedison, Gail Sondergaard, John Carradine, Rennie Jarrett, Key Luke, and Stuart Whitman. Well-known TV producers Douglas S. Kramer and Wilfred Lloyd Baums, along with prolific writer Robert Block, developed the short story Block had published years earlier in Weird Tales magazine. Block then wrote the teleplay. However, The Cat Creature was an unhappy production experience for Block. Douglas Kramer had wanted to do an update of the 1942 film Cat People. Block says, Instead, I suggested a blending of the elements of several well-remembered films and came up with a storyline which dealt with the Egyptian cat goddess Bast, reincarnation and the first bypass operation ever performed on an artichoke heart. A full detailed account of the troubled production of the film is described in Block's autobiography, once around the block. Director Curtis Harrington had Hollywood actress Gail Sondergaard in mind for the role of Hester Black from the beginning. She was an actress he remembered vividly from his childhood and had ideas for her character that rifled the feathers of the network censors. In his book, 
Nice Guys Don't Work in Hollywood, he relates his experience. I had wanted the proprietress of the occult shop to be played as a lesbian, to lend a bit of spice to the show. But standards and practices, the office of the network devoted to removing any element to a script that might offend Mrs. Grundy, sent a memo after that there must be no suggestion whatsoever that this character is a lesbian. However, my natural propensity toward subversion was given its due when Douglas Kramer allowed me to add a dwarf hooker to a scene in a cheap hotel, where Stuart Whitman, as the detective, interviews John Carradine, who plays the hotel clerk. The dwarf lady of the evening is shown seated on the counter in the hotel lobby. Swinging her short legs and batting her eyelashes, she says to Stuart, How's tricks, baby? This was left in, and Kramer was very pleased when the incident was singled out for comment in a New York Times review of the show. It wasn't the sort of thing they were used to seeing in the bland medium of television. Even after this little skirmish with the censors, when watching the film, you may notice Curtis snuck his lesbians into the movie after all. This film was an interesting tribute to the 1940s Val Luton style of filmmaking, relying on ambience, stylized lighting, and use of shadows to convey what is taking place instead of explicit violence. In Curtis's subversive content, he managed to sneak past the censors, are a callback to pre-code Hollywood films. The Cat Creature later aired as an installment of ABC's The Wide World of Mystery in 1975. It was never released to home video and is not currently available on any streaming service. However, it occasionally does air on TV channels that show old movies and is easily found on YouTube. After these creepy messages, we'll be right back. What's wrong with Dracula? He's losing his monster power. So is Frankenstein. Quick, into the monsterizer. You can activate the monsterizer. Batteries not included. And imagine you're restoring monster power to Frankenstein. Figure sold separately. You crank him into the chamber. It closes automatically. Activate the monsterizer. I feel like a new monster. The monsterizer comes complete as shown. Frankenstein and Dracula figures are sold separately. New from Remco. What is the dark secret of Harvest Hall? What did you see? A ghost? You want me to believe that you accept this local voodoo? What do they do? Do you want to end up like me? Betty Davis in a two-part chiller, The Dark Secret of Harvest Home, begins tonight after cliffhangers. motion picture. The ABC Friday Night Movie. That's not your garden variety stiff out there. Something very strange did that. A legendary creature with an unearthly thirst for revenge. She would transform herself into a giant spider, sting them, wrap them in her web, and feed on them at her leisure. It's happened again. What did you see? I saw a spider. Who can survive the curse of the Black Widow?
Curse of the Black Widow. Aired September 16, 1977, as the ABC Friday Night Movie. Late at night at a California bar, several regulars are having drinks as a woman with a vague European accent who had just left re-enters, claiming she couldn't get her car started. One of the regulars follows her out, and she makes the moves on him in the parking lot. Immediately, we see this is no ordinary woman. As her eyes glow, she begins hissing, and we see an eight-eye point-of-view shot of the man recoiling in horror. The men inside hear the screams and rush outside. One of them, P.I. Mark Higby, known to Police Lieutenant Conti, who arrives on the scene and questions them. Yeah, well, I saw something. I don't know what it was, but it was moving fast as hell, right up over the top of that cliff. What's something? Big something. A little something. Can you describe it? No, I can't. I didn't see it that well. But I'll tell you this, Gully. Nobody I know could climb a cliff that high. Not unless there was some kind of freak o human fly. Is that the best you can do for me? That's it. Hey, Carlo. Yeah. The Stefan lady, uh, it's Valerie Stefan. Can you describe her? Oh, yeah. I mean, some fox, you know, dark eyes, dark hair. Kind of like a, a, a European accent or something, you know. She came on to Frank right away, and the next thing you know, boom. Hey, Gully, what's going on? That's not your garden variety stiff out there. Something very strange did that. Higby, you still have your investigator's license? Yeah, sure. You want to keep it? The very next day, the dead man's girlfriend, beautiful socialite Leigh Lockridge, hires Higby to find out what really happened. Investigating the tragic past of the Lockridge family, including Lee's uptight sister Laura, Higby discovers the victim was only the latest of several dead men connected to the enigmatic Valerie, the European woman who lured the victim outside the bar. Questioning the medical examiner, he finds all the male victims were wrapped in a silken cocoon, with two huge puncture marks in their chest, and all their blood drained. November 12, 1975. Terrence Douglas, stockbroker, Century City. Those chest wounds. They look like what Frank Chatham had, huh? They certainly do. February 3rd, 1975. Mm -hmm. Peter Mossman, airline executive, Marina Del Rey. Mm -hmm. And here, October 23rd, 1974. Chester Bliss, architect, Malibu. Yeah? So the guy's got a track record, huh? Hank, what's the big deal? I still don't understand all the hush-hush. Mark, that's the lab report on Mr. Bliss. It's what they found in the bodies and something else. In each case, the bodies were completely drained of blood. Soon, another male victim falls prey to the creature. Higby speaks to an ex-boxer who witnessed one of the murders. 
The huge man seems frightened out of his mind and informs Higby that when he told the police what he saw, they didn't believe him. When Higby asks what it was the police wouldn't believe, the boxer tells him. I saw a spider. What? You heard me, mister. I saw a spider, a giant spider. Reading up on Native American legends, Higby finds... Some Northern California Indians believed it was a curse of some kind transmitted down through the female line. It may lie dormant for years until triggered by a certain kind of spider venom. Once bitten by the spider, the woman, periodically, but only during the cycle of the full moon, makes the transformation into an incredibly large spider. It also turns out sisters Lee and Laura were in a serious accident when they were infants, and one of them was bitten by a horde of black widow spiders. But which one? Upon asking, Laura claims Lee was the one bitten. But unseen to everyone, Laura then begins dressing in completely different clothing, including a wig, and reveals to the camera a red hourglass birthmark on her belly. Valerie is a personality Laura takes on before transforming into the Black Widow. As Valerie, she tried to seduce Lee's boyfriends, and when they refused her, she became the Black Widow creature and killed them. When Lee arrives at Laura's house, the Black Widow creature cocoons her in a web. Higby soon arrives on the scene, and after a long search in the basement through multiple desiccated bodies, finally finds Lee alive in the cocoon. The Black Widow creature appears, and Higby fires at it, then hurls an oil lantern at it, setting it ablaze. With the case solved, Lee attempts to forget the horrors of the past and get on with her life. She begins dating Higby, as well as adopts her niece, Laura's daughter, Jennifer. Hello, Mr. Higby! Hi, Jennifer! She seems to be adjusting. I think so. She's going back to school and she's making new friends. She still has a nightmare now and then, but less and less. How are you doing? I just pretend the whole thing never happened. Sometimes it even works. All right, milady. I didn't come here to talk. I came here to eat. Okay. Shall we? Right. Jennifer! Time to eat. Can I have just one more dip? All right, honey, but make it quick. She's growing up so fast. You know, it's funny. She doesn't really resemble her, but sometimes she reminds me so much of Laura. As Lee and Higby enjoy a quiet dinner at Lee's beach house, Jennifer goes swimming, 
and we notice that she has the red hourglass birthmark on her abdomen. Bone chilling behind the scenes. Airing after ABC was no longer doing movies of the week, this one ran a full two hours as ABC's Friday Night Movie. It actually aired against the 90-minute premiere of CBS's new series, Logan's Run. Anthony Franchosa, Donna Mills, Patty Duke, June Lockhart, Max Gale, Vic Morrow, June Allison, and Sid Caesar all appeared. Curse of the Black Widow was brought to us by producer and director Dan Curtis and was written by Robert Blease and Earl Wallace. This was the only effort the two worked on together. Blease had written a number of screenplays in the 1950s, including the Jane Wyman film Magnificent Obsession, the Ronald Reagan classic Cattle Queen of Montana, and From the Earth to the Moon, adapted from the Jules Verne novel. In the 1970s, he ventured into horror with Whoever Slew Auntie Rue, Frogs, and Dr. Fibes Rises Again. Earl Wallace was less prolific, but had penned episodes of Gunsmoke, Beretta, and Tales of the Unexpected. We see his name pop up again as one of the creators of Super Train, and as one of the writers of the 1985 film Witness with Harrison Ford. Dan Curtis regular Robert Cobert provided the musical score, which was very 70s TV detective show, and not at all like the great music we had in the Kolchak movies or on Dark Shadows, which added to the tonal problems of this film. This movie does use the Dan Curtis tried-and-true formula of a lone investigator on the trail of a supernatural being. But unfortunately, this isn't one of his better efforts, and it plays very much like a Banachek meets Kolchak, to the point where I began to wonder if this wasn't a backdoor pilot for Mark Higby, P.I. Franchosa was certainly likable enough and had the charisma to carry a series, as he had done with Valentine's Day, Search, and Matt Helm. But despite the Dan Curtis pedigree, this film just doesn't have the mood or atmosphere of his previous work. There are a lot of unnecessary characters, and it runs entirely too long, and would have worked better as one of the 90-minute movies of the week, or even as a one-hour TV episode. The actual human-sized Black Widow creature presented at the climax of the film isn't nearly as bad as many online reviews complain about. This would be the last of Dan Curtis's explorations into 1970s TV horror. This one actually received home video releases. It had an early VHS release under the title Love Trap and later a deluxe collector's edition by Anchor Bay in 1999 but the film never made it to DVD. Curse of the Black Widow is easily found on YouTube. Next time on Forgotten TV. You voted, and Forgotten TV listens. Join me as I consider the 1977 Man from Atlantis. TV movies and series with Patrick Duffy. That's next time on Forgotten TV.
Forgotten TV is not affiliated with ABC, ABC Circle Films, Kino Lorber, Filmways Television, The Douglas S. Kramer Company, Screen Gems Television, Dan Curtis Productions, or any production company involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. All mentioned series and associated characters are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. And I'd like to thank the following creepy YouTube channels for making the audio clips in this episode possible. Videoholic Ultimate, Alan Grant, Frodo Vader, The Museum of Classic Chicago Television, CCCH After Midnight TV, Retro Old Commercials, Fake Nom, Carrie Mustard, Star Wars Stockpile, Rob at Sea 2009, Spooky Movie Dave, Sean MC, as well as the A Kolchak A Day blog, Mark DeWidziak and the Night Stalker Companion, ComingSoon.net, and TheLastDriveIn.com. A significant amount of time is put into the research and production of Forgotten TV. If you like the show, the best way to help is please rate the show by giving it a star rating or even a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Breaking into new and noteworthy on iTunes would be awesome. And the next time you need anything from Amazon, go to the Forgotten TV Facebook page and click Shop Now. Those extra few dollars a month are used to offset the cost of DVDs and books I buy every month producing this show. You can even support Forgotten TV directly by getting me something from my Amazon wish list, such as a DVD of a show or TV movie you want to see reviewed on Forgotten TV. For content in addition to what is presented in the podcast, like the Forgotten TV Facebook page or follow Forgotten TV on Twitter. Those links are found at Forgotten.tv. Forgotten TV is a member of the Frequent Wire Podcast Network, where you can find other great entertainment podcasts. I'm your creepy host, Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV.